Wuthering Heights, chapter 32. I think this is probably going to be the last recording session. Three chapters left. And an incredible story. <laughs> it's taken me a long time. But I was, I feel really privileged to have been able to share it in this way. So let's find out what happens with the rest of the story. So as I said, chapter 32. 1802. This September I was invited to devastate the moors of a friend in the north. And on my journey to his abode I unexpectedly came within 15 miles of Gimmerton. The ostler at a roadside public house was holding a pail of water to refresh my horses when a cart of very green oats, newly reaped, passed by, and he remarked, Yon from Gimmerton na, er alas three week after the other foot with a harvest. Gimmerton, I repeated. My residence in that locality had already grown dim and dreamy. Ah, I know, how, how far is it from this? Happened fourteen miles over the hills and a rough road, he answered. A sudden impulse seized me to visit Thrushcross Grange. It was scarcely noon and I conceived that I might as well pass the night under my own roof as an inn. Besides, I could spare a day easily to arrange matters with my landlord and thus save myself the trouble of invading the neighbourhood again. Having rested a while, I directed my servant to inquire the way to the village and with great fatigue to our beasts we managed the distance in some three hours. I left him there and proceeded down the valley alone. The grey church looked greyer and the lonely churchyard lonelier. I distinguished a moor sheep cropping the short turf on the graves. It was sweet, warm weather, too warm for travelling, but the heat did not hinder me from enjoying the delightful scenery above and below. Had I seen it nearer August, I'm sure it would have tempted me to waste a month among its solitudes. In winter, nothing more dreary. In summer, nothing more divine than those glens shut in by hills and those bluff, bold swells of heath. I reached the Grange before sunset and knocked for admittance, but the family had retreated into the back premises, I judged, by one thin blue wreath curling from the kitchen chimney, and they did not hear. I rode into the court. Under the porch, a girl of nine or ten sat knitting, and an old woman reclined on the house steps, smoking a meditative pipe. Is Mrs. is Mrs. Dean within? I demanded of the dame. Mistress Dean? Nay, she answered. She doesn't bide here. She's up at the heights. Are you the housekeeper then? I continued. Eh, I keep the house, she replied. Well, I'm Mr. Lockwood, the master. Are there any rooms to lodge me in, I wonder? I wish to stay all night. To master? She cried in astonishment. What, whoever were you coming? You should have sent word. There's now neither dry nor messin' about the place, now there is. She threw down her pipe and bustled in. The girl followed and I entered too, soon perceiving her report was true, and moreover that I'd almost upset her wits by my unwelcome apparition. I bade her be composed. I would go out for a walk and meantime she must try to prepare a corner of a sitting room for me to sup in and a bedroom to sleep in. No sweeping and dusting, only good firing and dry sheets were necessary. She seemed willing to do her best, though she thrust the hearthbrush into the grates in mistake for the poker and malappropriated several other articles of her craft. But I retired, confiding in her energy for a resting place against my return. 
Wuthering Heights was the goal of my proposed excursion, an afterthought thought brought me back when I had quitted the court. All well at the heights? I inquired of the woman. Eh, for arty no, she answered, scurrying away with a pan of hot cinders. I would have asked why Mrs Dean had deserted the Grange, but it was impossible to delay her at such a crisis, so I turned away and made my exit, rambling leisurely along, with the glow of a sinking sun behind and the mild glory of a rising moon in front, one fading and the other brightening, as I quitted the park and climbed the stony by-road branching off to Mr Heathcliff's dwelling. Before I arrived in sight of it, all that remained of the day was a beamless amber light along the west, but I could see every pebble on the path and every blade of grass by that splendid moon. I had neither to climb the gate nor to knock, it yielded to my hand. This is an improvement, I thought. And I noticed another, by the aid of my nostrils, a fragrance of stocks and wallflowers wafted on the air from amongst the homely fruit trees. Both doors and lattices were open, and yet, as is usually the case in a coal district, a fine red fire illuminated the chimney. The comfort which the eye derives from it renders the extra heat endurable. But the house of Wuthering Heights is so large that the inmates have plenty of space withdrawing out of its influence, and accordingly what inmates there were had stationed themselves not far from one of the windows. I could both see them and hear them talk before I entered, and looked and listened in a consequence, being moved thereto by a mingled sense of curiosity and envy that grew as I lingered. Contrary, said a voice as sweet as silver bell. That for the third time you dunce. I'm not going to tell you again. Recollect or I'll pull your hair. Contrary then, answered another in deep but softened tones. And now kiss me for minding so well. No, read it over first correctly without a single mistake. The male speaker began to read. He was a young man respectably dressed and seated at a table having a book before him. His handsome features glowed with pleasure and his eyes kept impatiently wandering from the page to a small white hand over his shoulder which recalled him by a smart slap on the cheek whenever its owner detected such signs of inattention. Its owner stood behind, her light shining ringlets blending at intervals with his brown looks as she bent to superintend his studies and her face, it was lucky he could not see her face, or he would never have been so steady. I could, and I bit my lip in spite, at having thrown away the chance I might have had of doing something besides staring at its smiting beauty. The task was done, not free from further blunders, but the pupil claimed a reward and received at least five kisses, which, however, he generously returned. When they came to the door, and from their conversation I judged they were about to issue out and have a walk on the moors. I supposed I should be condemned in Hareton Earnshaw's heart, if not by his mouth, to the lowest pit in the infernal regions if I showed my unfortunate person in this neighbourhood again. Then, feeling very mean and malignant, I skulked round to seek refuge in the kitchen. There was unobstructed admittance on that side also, and at the door sat my old friend Nellie Dean, sewing and singing a song which was often interrupted from within by harsh words of scorn and intolerance uttered in far from musical accents. I'd rather by the half have em swear in me lungs from morn till night nor hearken ye has siver, said the tenant of the kitchen in answer to the unheard speech of Nellie's. It is a blazing shame that I cannot open the blessed book, but ye set up them glories to Satan. 
and all to flace and wickedness that ever were born in the world. Oh, you're a riot now, and shoes another, and that poor lad I'll be lost between you. Poor lad, he added with a groan. He's witched, I'm certain of it. Oh, Lord, judge him, for there's neither law nor justice among well rulers. No, or we should be sitting in flaming faggots, I suppose, retorted the singer. But wished, old man, and read your Bible like a Christian, and never mind me. This is Fairy Annie's wedding, a bonny tune. It goes to a dance. Mrs Dean was about to recommence when I advanced, and recognising me directly, she jumped to her feet, crying, Why, bless you, Mr Lockwood. How could you think of returning in this way? All shut up at Thrushcross Grange. You should have given us notice. I've arranged to be accommodated there for as long as I shall stay, I answered. I depart again tomorrow. And how are you transplanted here, Mrs Dean? Tell me that. Zilla left, and Mr Heathcliff wished me to come soon after you went to London, and stay until you returned. But step in, I pray. Have you walked from Gimmerton this evening? From the Grange, I replied, and while they made me lodging room there, I want to finish my business with your master, because I don't think of having another opportunity in a hurry. What business, sir? said Nellie, conducting me into the house. He's gone out at present, and won't return soon. About the rent, I answered. Oh! Then it is with Mrs Heathcliff you must settle, she observed, or rather with me. She has not learnt to manage her affairs yet, and I act for her. There's nobody else. I look surprised. Ah, you have not heard of Heathcliff's death, I see, she continued. Heathcliff dead? I exclaimed, astonished. How long ago? Three months since. But sit down and let me take your hat and I'll tell you all about it. Stop, you have had nothing to eat, have you? I want nothing. I have ordered supper at home. You sit down too. I never dreamt of his dying. Let me hear how it came to pass. You say you don't expect them back for some time. The, the young people? No, I have to scold them every evening for their late rambles, but they don't care for me. At least have a drink of our old ale. It will do you good. You seem weary. She hastened to fetch it before I could refuse, and I heard Joseph asking whether it weren't a crying scandal that she should have followers at her time of life, and then to get them jocks out of the master's cellar. He frae shame to bide them see it. She did not stay to retaliate, but re-entered in a minute, bearing a reaming silver pint, whose contents I lauded with becoming earnestness. And afterwards she furnished me with the sequel of Heathcliff's history, he had a queer end, as she expressed it. I was summoned to Wuthering Heights within a fortnight of your leaving us, she said, and I obeyed joyfully for Catherine's sake. My first interview with her grieved and shocked me. She had altered so much since our separation. Mr Heathcliff did not explain his reasons for taking a new mind about me coming here. He only told me he wanted me and he was tired of seeing Catherine and I must make the little parlour in my sitting room and keep her with me. It was enough if he were obliged to see her once or twice a day. She seemed pleased at this arrangement, and by decrees I smuggled over a great number of books and other articles that had formed her amusement at the Grange, and flattered myself we should get on in tolerable comfort. This delusion did not last long. Catherine, contented at first, in a brief space grew irritable and restless. For one thing, she was forbidden to move out of the garden, and it fretted her sadly to be confined to its narrow bounds as spring drew on. For another, in following the house, I was forced to quit her frequently, and she complained of loneliness. 
She preferred quarrelling with Joseph in the kitchen to sitting at peace in her solitude. I did not mind their skirmishes, but Hareton was often obliged to seek the kitchen also when the master wanted to have the house to himself. And though in the beginning she either left it at his approach or quietly joined in my occupations and shunned remarking or addressing him, and though he was always sullen and silent as possible, after a while she changed her behaviour and became incapable of letting him alone, talking at him, commenting on his stupidity and idleness, expressing her wonder how he could endure the life he lived, how he could sit a whole evening staring into the fire and dozing. He's just like a dog, is he not, Ellen? she once observed. Or a cart horse. He does his work, eats his food and sleeps eternally. What a blank, dreary mind you must have. Do you ever dream, Hareton? And if you do, what it is about? But you can't speak to me. Then she looked at him, but he would neither open his mouth nor look again. He's perhaps dreaming now, she continued. He twitched his shoulder as Juno twitches hers. Ask him, Ellen. Mr Hareton will ask the master to send you upstairs if you don't behave, I said. He had not only twitched his shoulder but clenched his fist as if tempted to use it. I know why Hareton never speaks when I'm in the kitchen, she exclaimed on another occasion. He is afraid I shall laugh at him. Ellen, what do you think? He began to teach himself to read once and because I laughed he burnt his books and dropped it. Was he not a fool? Were you not naughty, I said. Answer me that. Perhaps I was, she went on, but I did not expect him to be so silly. Hareton, if I gave you a book, would you try it now? Take it. She placed one she had been perusing on his hand. He flung it off and muttered. If she did not give over, he would break her neck. Well, I shall put it in here, she said, in the table drawer, and I'm going to bed. Then she whispered me to watch whether he touched it and departed, but he would not come near it and so I informed her in the morning to her great disappointment. I saw she was sorry for his persevering sulkiness and indolence. Her conscience reproved her for frightening him off improving himself. She had done it effectually, but her ingenuity was at work to remedy the injury. While I ironed or pursued such stationary employments as I could not do well in the parlour, she would bring some pleasant volume and read it aloud to me. When Hareton was there, she generally paused in an interesting part and left the book lying about. That she did repeatedly, but he was as obstinate as a mule, and instead of snatching at her bait, in wet weather he took to smoking with Joseph, and they sat like automatons, one on each side of the fire, the elder happily to death to understand her wicked nonsense, as he would have called it, the younger doing his best to seem to disregard it. On fine evenings, the latter followed his shooting expeditions, and Catherine yawned and sighed and teased me to talk to her and ran off into the court or garden the moment I began, and as a last resource, cried and said she was tired of living. Her life was useless. Mr Heathcliff, who grew more and more disinclined to society, had almost banished Earnshaw from his apartment. Owning to an accident at the commencement of March, he became for some days a fixture in the kitchen, his gun burst while out on the hills by himself. A splinter cut his arm and he lost a good deal of blood before he could reach home. The consequence was that, perforce, he was condemned to the fireside and tranquillity till he made it up again. It suited Catherine to have him there, at any rate. It made her hate her room upstairs more than ever and she would compel me to find out business below that she might accompany me. On Easter Monday, Joseph went to Gimmerton Fair with some cattle. 
and in the afternoon I was busy getting up linen in the kitchen. Earnshaw sat, morose as usual, at the chimney corner, and my little mistress was beguiling an idle hour with drawing pictures on the window panes, varying her amusement by smothered bursts of song and whispered ejaculations and quick glances of annoyance and impatience in the direction of her cousin, who steadfastly smoked and looked into the grate. At a notice that I could do with her no longer intercepting my light, she removed to the hearthstone. I bestowed little attention. on her proceedings, but presently I heard her begin. I've found out, Hareton, that I want, that I'm glad that I should like you to be my cousin now if you'd not grown so cross to me and so rough. Hareton returned no answer. Hareton, 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 do you hear? She continued. Get off with you, he growled with an uncompromising gruffness. Let me take that pipe, she said, cautiously advancing her hand and abstracting it from his mouth. Before he could attempt to recover it, it was broken and behind the fire. He swore at her and seized another. Stop, she cried. You must listen to me first, and I can't speak while those clouds are floating in my face. Will you go to the devil, he exclaimed ferociously, and let me be. No, she persisted, I won't. I can't tell what to do to make you talk to me. And you are determined not to understand. When I call you stupid, I don't mean anything. I don't mean that I despise you. Come, you shall take notice of me, Hareton. You are my cousin and you shall own me. I shall have naught to do with you and your mucky pride and your damn mocking tricks, he answered. I'll go to hell, body and soul, before I look sideways after you again. Side out to gate now this minute. Catherine frowned and retreated to the window seat, chewing her lip and endeavouring, by humming an eccentric tune, to conceal a growing tendency to sob. You should be friends with your cousin, Mr Hareton, I interrupted. Since she repents of her sauciness, it would do you a great deal of good. It would make you another man to have her for a companion. A companion, he cried, when she hates me and does not think me fit to wipe her shoon. Nay, if it made me king, I'd not be scorned for seeking her goodwill any more. It is not I who hate you, it is you who hate me, wept Caffey, no longer disguising her trouble. You hate me as much as Mr Heathcliff does, and more. You're a damned liar, began Earnshaw. Why have I made him angry by taking your part then a hundred times? And that when you sneered at and despised me. And go on plaguing me and I'll step in yonder and say you worried me out of the kitchen. I didn't know you took my part, she answered, drying her eyes. And I was miserable and bitter with everybody. But now I thank you and beg you to forgive me. What can I do besides? She returned to the hearth and frankly extended her hand. He blackened and scowled like a thundercloud and kept his fists resolutely clenched and his gaze fixed on the ground. Catherine, by instinct, must have divined it was obdurate perversity and not dislike that prompted this dogged conduct, for after remaining an instant undecided, she stooped and impressed on his cheek a gentle kiss. The little rogue thought I'd not seen her, and drawing back, she took her former station by the window quite demurely. I shook my head reprovingly, and then she blushed and whispered, Well, what should I have done, Ellen? He wouldn't shake hands and he wouldn't look. I must show him some way that I like him, that I want to be friends. Whether the kiss convinced Hareton, I cannot tell, for he was very careful for some minutes that his face should not be seen, and when he did raise it, he was sadly puzzled where to turn his eyes. 
Catherine employed herself in wrapping a handsome book neatly in white paper and having tied it with a bit of ribbon and addressed it to Mr. Hareton Earnshaw. She desired me to be her ambassadress and convey the presents to its destined recipient. And tell him if he'll take it, I'll come and teach him to read it right, she said. And if you refuse it, I'll go upstairs and never tease him again. I carried it and repeated the message, anxiously watched by my employer. Hareton would not open his fingers, so I laid it on his knee. He did not strike it off either. I returned to my work. Catherine leaned her head and arms on the table till she heard the slight rustle of the covering being removed and she stole away and quietly seated herself by her cousin. He trembled and his face glowed. All his rudeness and all his surly harshness had deserted him. He could not summon courage at first to utter a syllable in reply to her questioning look and her murmured petition. Say you forgive me, Hareton, do. You can make me so happy by speaking that little word. He muttered something inaudible. And you'll be my friend, added Catherine interrogatively. Nay, you'll be ashamed of me every day of your life, he answered. And the more ashamed, the more you know me, and I cannot bind it. So you won't be my friend, she said, smiling as sweet as honey and creeping close up. I overheard no further distinguishable talk, but on looking round again I perceived two such radiant countenances bent over the page of the accepted book that I did not doubt the treaty had been ratified on both sides, and the enemies were, thenceforth, sworn allies. The work they studied was full of costly pictures, and those in their position had charm enough to keep them unmoved till Joseph came home. He, poor man, was perfectly aghast at the spectacle of Catherine seated on the same bench with Hareton Earnshaw, leaning her hand on his shoulder, and confounded at his favourite's endurance of her proximity. It affected him too deeply to allow an observation on the subject that night. His emotion was only revealed by the immense sighs he drew as he solemnly spread his large Bible on the table and overlaid it with dirty banknotes from his pocketbook, the produce of the day's transactions. At length, he summoned Hareton from his seat. Take these to the master, lad, he said, and bide there. He's going up to me own room. This hall is neither mensal nor seemly for us. We must outside and search another. Come, Catherine, I said. We must side out too. I've done my ironing. Are you ready to go? It's not eight o'clock, she answered, rising unwillingly. Hareton, I'll leave this book upon the chimney piece and I'll bring some more tomorrow. Only books that you leave I shall take into the house, said Joseph. And it'll be much if you find him again, so you may please yourself. Cathy threatened that his library should pay for hers, and smiling she passed Hareton, went singing upstairs lighter of heart. I venture to say, than she had ever been under the roof before, except perhaps during her earliest visits to Linton. The intimacy thus commenced grew rapidly, though it encountered temporary interruptions. Earnshaw was not to be civilised with a wish, and my young lady was no philosopher and no paragon of patience. But both their minds tending to the same point, one loving and desiring to be to esteem, and the other loving and desiring to be esteemed, they contrived in the end to reach it. You see, Mr Lockwood, it was easy enough to win Mrs Heathcliff's heart, but now I'm glad you did not try. The crown of all my wishes will be the union of those two. I shall envy no one on their wedding day. There won't be a happier woman than myself in England. 
Chapter 33 On the morrow of that Monday, Earnshaw, being still unable to follow his ordinary employments and therefore remaining about the house, I speedily found it would be impractical to retain my charge beside me as heretofore. She got downstairs before me and out into the garden, where she had seen her cousin performing some easy work, and when I went to bid them come in for breakfast, I saw she had persuaded him to clear a large space of ground from currant and gooseberry bushes, and they were busy planning together an importation of plants from the Grange. I was terrified of the devastation which had been accomplished in a brief half hour. The black currant trees were the apple of Joseph's eye, and she had just fixed her choice of a flower bed in the midst of them. There, that will be all shown to the master, I exclaimed, the minute it is discovered. And what excuse have you to offer for taking such liberties with a garden? We shall have a fine explosion on the head of it, see if we don't. Mr Hareton, I wonder you should have not more wit than to go and make a mess at her bidding. I had forgotten they were Joseph's, he answered, rather puzzled, but I'll tell him I did it. We always ate our meals with Mr Heathcliff. I held the mistress's post in making tea and carving, so I was indispensable at the table. Catherine usually sat by me, but today she stole nearer to Hareton, and I presently saw she would have no more discretion in her friendship than she had in her hostility. Now mind you don't talk with and notice your cousin too much, were my whispered instructions as we entered the room. It will certainly annoy Mr Heathcliff, and he'll be mad at you both. I'm not going to, she answered. The minute after, she had sidled to him and was sticking primroses in his plate of porridge. <laughs> he dared not speak to her there. He dared hardly look. And yet she went on teasing till he was twice on the point of being provoked to laugh. I frowned and then she glanced towards the master, whose mind was occupied on the other subjects than the his company and his countenance evinced. And she grew serious for an instant, scrutinising him with deep gravity. Afterwards she turned and recommenced her nonsense. At last Hareton uttered a smothered laugh. Mr Heathcliff started. His eyes rapidly surveyed our faces. Catherine met it with her accustomed look of nervousness and yet defiance which he abhorred. It is well you are out of my reach, he exclaimed. What fiend possesses you to stare back at me continually with those infernal eyes? Down with them and don't remind me of your existence again. I thought I had cured you of laughing. It was me, muttered Hareton. What did you say? demanded the master. Hareton looked at his plate and did not repeat the confession. Mr Heathcliff looked at him a bit and then silently resumed his breakfast and his interrupted musing. We had nearly finished and the two young people prudently shifted wider asunder, so I anticipated no further disturbance during that sitting when Joseph appeared at the door revealing by his quivering lip and furious eyes that the outrage committed on his precious shrubs was detected. He must have seen Cathy and her cousin about the spot before he examined it, for while his jaws worked like those of a cow chewing its cud and rendered his speech difficult to understand, he began, I must have my wage and I must go. I'd aim to dee where I serve for sixty years and throw out I'd lug my books up to the garret and all my bits of stuff and they served to have the kitchen for themselves for the sake of quietness. It were hard to give up an arse from, but I throw I could do that, but nay, she's taken me garden from me, and by the heart, master, I cannot stand it. You may bend to the yoke, and you will. I'm not used to it, and an old man doesn't sue and get a new bathans. 
I'd rather arm the spite with the supper than a hammer in the road. Now, now, idiot, interrupted Heathcliff. Cut it short. What's your grievance? I'll interfere in no quarrels between you and Nellie. She may have thrust you in the coal hole for anything I care. It's not Nellie, answered Joseph. I shouldn't shift for Nellie. Nasty ill now as she is. Thank God. She cannot stale the sour nobody. She were never so handsome, but what a body might with about a winking. It's yon flaysome gracious queen that's witched our lad, with her bawdeen and her furred ways till... Nay, it fair burst me heart. He's forgotten all I've done for him, and made on him, and grown and riven up a whole robe to grandest countries into garden. And here he lamented outright, unmanned by a sense of his bitter injuries and earnsaws, ingratitude and dangerous condition. Is the fool drunk? asked Mr Heathcliff. Hareton, is it you he's finding fault with? I've pulled up two or three bushes, replied the young man, but I'm going to set them again. And why have you pulled them up? said the master. Cathleen wisely put in her tongue. You wanted to plant some flowers there, she cried. I'm the only person to blame, for I wished him to do it. And who the devil gave you leave to touch a stick about the place? demanded her father-in-law, much surprised. And who ordered you to obey her? he added, turning to Hareton. The latter was speechless. His cousin replied, You shouldn't grudge a few yards of earth for me to ornament when you have taken all of my land. Your land, you insolent slut, you never had any, said Heathcliff. And my money, she continued, returning his angry glare and meantime biting a piece of crust, the remnant of her breakfast. Silence, he exclaimed. Get done and be gone. And Hareton's land and his money, pursued the reckless thing. Hareton and I are friends now, and I shall tell him all about you. The master seemed confounded a moment. He grew pale and rose up, eyeing her all the while with an expression of mortal hate. If you strike me, Hareton will strike you, she said, so you may as well sit down. If Hareton does not turn you out of the room, I'll strike him to hell, thundered Heathcliff. Damnable witch! Dare you pretend to rouse him against me? Off with her, do you hear? Fling her into the kitchen. I'll kill her, Ellen Dean, if you let her come in my sight again. Hareton tried under his breath to persuade her to go. Drag her away, he cried savagely. Are you staying to talk? And he approached to execute his own command. He'll not obey you, wicked man, any more, said Catherine, and he'll soon detest you as much as I do. Wished, wished, muttered the young man reproachfully. I will not hear you speak to him like so. Have done. But you won't let him strike me, she cried. Come then, he whispered earnestly. It was too late. Heathcliff had caught hold of her. Now you go, he said to Earnshaw, a cursed witch. This time she has provoked me when I could not bear it and I'll make her repent of it for ever. He had his hand he had in his hand her hair. Hareton attempted to release her locks, entreating him not to hurt her that once. Heathcliff's black eyes flashed. He seemed ready to tear Catherine into pieces. And I was just worked up to risk coming to the rescue when a sudden, all of a sudden his fingers relaxed. He shifted his grasp from her head to her arm and gazed intently in her face. Then he drew his hand over his eyes, stood a moment to collect himself apparently and turning anew to Catherine said with assumed calmness, you must learn to avoid putting me in a passion, or I shall really murder you some time. 
go with Mrs. Dean and keep with her, and confine your insolence to her ears. As to Hareton Earnshaw, if I see you, him, listen to you, I'll send him seeking his bread where he can get it. Your love will make him an outcast and a beggar. Nelly, take her, and leave me, all of you, leave me. I led my young lady out. She was too glad of her escape to resist. The other followed, and Mr Heathcliff had the room to himself till dinner. I had counselled Catherine to dine upstairs, but as soon as he perceived her vacant seat, he sent her, sent me to call her. He spoke to no one of us, ate very little, and went out directly afterwards, intimating he should not return before evening. The two new friends established themselves in the house during his absence, where I heard Hareton sternly check his cousin on her offering a revelation of her father-in-law's conduct to his father. He said he wouldn't suffer a word to be uttered in his, in his disparagement. If he were the devil, it didn't signify he would stand by him and he'd rather she would abuse himself, as she used to do, than begin on Mr Heathcliff. Catherine was waxing cross at this, but he found means to make her hold her tongue by asking how she would like him to speak ill of her father. Then she comprehended that Earnshaw took the master's reputation home to himself and was attached by ties stronger than by reason could break. Change, chains, forged by habit, which it would be cruel to attempt to loosen. She showed a good heart thenceforth in avoiding both complaints and expressions of antipathy concerning Heathcliff and confessed to me her sorrow that she had endeavoured to raise a bad spirit between him and Hareton. Indeed, I don't believe she has ever breathed a syllable in the latter's hearing against her oppressor since. When this slight disagreement was over, they were friends again, and as busy as possible in their several occupations of pupil and teacher. I came in to sit with them after I'd done my work, and I felt so soothed and comforted to watch them that I did not notice how time got on. You know, they both appeared in a measure my children. I had long been proud of one, and now I was sure the other would be a source of equal satisfaction. His honest, warm and intelligent nature shook off rapidly the clouds of ignorance and degradation in which it had been bred, and Catherine's sincere commendations acted as a spur to his industry. His brightening mind brightened his features and added spirit and nobility to their aspect. I could hardly fancy it the same individual I had beheld on the day I discovered my little lady at Wuthering Heights after her expedition to the crags. While I admired and they laboured, dusk drew on, and with it returned the master. He came upon us quite unexpectedly, entering by the front way, and had a full view of the whole three, ere we could raise our heads to glance at him. Well, I reflected, there was never a pleasanter or more harmless sight and it will be a burning shame to scold them. The red firelight glowed on their two bonny heads and revealed their faces animated with the eager interest of children. For though he was twenty-three and she eighteen, each had so much novelty to feel and learn that neither experienced nor evinced the sentiments of sober disenchanted maturity. They lifted their eyes together to encounter Mr Heathcliff. Perhaps you have never remarked that their eyes are precisely similar they are those of Catherine Earnshaw. The present Catherine has no other likeness to her except a breadth of forehead and a certain arch of the nostril that makes her appear rather haughty, whether she will or not. With Hareton the resemblance is carried farther. It is singular at all times. Then it was particularly striking, 
because his senses were alert and his mental faculties wakened to the unwanted activity. I suppose this resemblance disarmed Mr Heathcliff. He walked to the hearth in evident agitation, but it quickly subsided as he looked at the young man, or I should say altered its character, for it was there yet. He took the book from his hand and glanced at the open page, then returned it without any observation, merely signing Catherine away. Her companion lingered very little behind her, and I was about to depart also, but he bid me sit still. It is a poor conclusion, is it not, he observed, having brooded a while on the scene he had just witnessed, an absurd termination to my violent exertions. I get levers and mattocks to demolish the two houses and train myself to be capable of working like Hercules. And when everything is ready and in my power, I find the will to lift a slate off either roof has vanished. My old enemies have not beaten me. Now they would be the precise time to revenge myself on their representatives. I could not do it and none could hinder me. But where is the use? I don't care for striking. I can't take the trouble to raise my hand. That sounds as if I had been labouring the whole time only to exhibit a fine trait of magnanimity. It is far from being the case. I have lost the faculty of enjoying their destruction. I am too idle to destroy for nothing. Nelly, there is a strange change approaching. I am in its shadow at present. I take so little interest in my daily life that I hardly remember to eat and drink. Those two who have left the room are the only objects which retain a distinct material appearance to me, and that appearance causes me pain, amounting to agony. About her, I won't speak, and I don't desire to think, but I earnestly wish she were invisible. Her presence invokes only maddening sensation. He moves me differently, and yet if I could do it without seeming insane, I'd never see him again. You'll perhaps think me rather inclined... To become so, he added, making an effort to smile, if I try to describe the thousand forms of past associations and ideas he awakens or embodies. But you'll not talk of what I tell you, and my mind is so eternally secluded in itself it is tempting at last to turn it out to another. Five minutes ago, Hareton seemed a personification of my youth, not a human being. I felt to him in such a variety of ways that it would have been impossible to have accosted him rationally. In the first place, his startling likeness to Catherine connected him fearfully with her. That, however, which you may suppose the most potent to arrest my imagination is actually the least, for what is not connected with her to me? And what does not recall her? I cannot look down to this floor, but her features are shaped in the flags. In every cloud, in every tree, filling the air at night and caught by glimpses in every object by day, I am surrounded with her image. The most ordinary faces of men and women, my own features, mock me within a resemblance. The entire world is a dreadful collection of memoranda that she did exist and that I have lost her. Well, Hareton's aspect was the ghost of my immortal love, of my wild endeavours to hold my right, my degradation, my pride, my happiness and my anguish. But it is frenzy to repeat these things to you. Only it will let you know why, with a reluctance to always be alone, his society is no benefit, rather an aggravation of the constant torment I suffer. And it partly contributes to render me regardless how he and his cousin go on together. I can give them no attention any more. 
But what do you mean by a change, Mr Heathcliff, I said, alarmed at his manner, though he was neither in danger of losing his senses nor dying, according to my judgment. He was quite strong and healthy, and as to his reason, from childhood he had a delight in dwelling on dark things and entertaining odd fancies. He might have had monomania on the subject of his departed idol, but on every other point his wits were as sound as mine. I shall not know till it comes, he said. I am only half conscious of it now. You have no feelings of illness, have you? I asked. No, Nelly, I have not. Then you are not afraid of death, I pursued. Afraid? No, he replied. I have neither a fear nor a presentiment nor a hope of death. Why should I? With my hard constitution and temperate mode of living and unperilous occupations, I ought to and probably shall remain above ground till there is scarcely a black hair on my head. And yet I cannot continue in this condition. I have to remind myself to breathe, almost to remind my heart to beat. And it is like bending back a stiff spring. It is by compulsion that I do the slightest act, not prompted by one thought, and by compulsion that I notice anything alive or dead which is not associated with one universal idea. I have a single wish, and my whole being and faculties are yearning to attain it. They have yearned towards it so long and so unwaveringly that I'm convinced it will be reached, and soon, because it has devoured my existence. I am swallowed up in the anticipation of its fulfilment. My confessions have not relieved me, but they may account for some otherwise unaccountable phases of humour which I show. Oh God, it is a long fight. I wish it were over. He began to pace the room, muttering terrible things to himself, till I was inclined to believe, as he said Joseph did, that conscience had turned his heart to an earthy hell. I wondered greatly how it would end. Though he seldom before had revealed this state of mind, even by looks, it was his habitual mood. I had no doubt. He had asserted it himself, but not a soul from his general bearing would have conjectured the fact. You did not when you saw him, Mr Lockwood. And at the period of which I speak, he was just the same as then, only fonder of continued solitude, and perhaps still more laconic in company. Chapter 34 For some days after that evening, Mr Heathcliff shunned meeting us at meals, yet he would not consent formally to exclude Hareton and Cathy. He had an aversion to yielding so completely to his feelings, choosing rather to absent himself, and eating once in twenty-four hours seemed sufficient sustenance for him. One night, after the family were in bed, I heard him go downstairs and out the front door. I did not hear him re-enter, and in the morning I found he was still away. We were in April then. The weather was sweet and warm, the grass as green as showers and sun could make it, and the two dwarf apple trees near the southern wall in full bloom. After breakfast, Catherine insisted on bringing a chair and sitting with my work under the fir trees at the end of the house, and she beguiled Hareton, who had perfectly recovered from his accident, to dig and arrange her little garden, which was shifted to that corner by the influence of Joseph's complaints. I was comfortably revelling in the spring fragrance around and the beautiful soft blue overhead, and my young lady, who had run down near the gate to procure some primrose roots for a border, returned only half-laden and informed us that Mr Heathcliff was coming in. 
and he spoke to me, she added, with a perplexed countenance. What did he say? asked Hareton. He told me to be gone as fast as I could, she answered. But he looked so different from his usual look that I stopped a moment to stare at him. How? he inquired. Why, almost bright and cheerful. No, almost nothing. Very much excited and wild and glad, she replied. Night walking amuses him then, I remarked, affecting a careless manner. In reality, as surprised as she was and anxious to ascertain the truth of her statement. For to see the master looking glad would not be an everyday spectacle. I framed an excuse to go in. Heathcliff stood at the open door. He was pale and he trembled. Yet certainly he had a strange, joyful glitter in his eyes that altered the aspect of his whole face. "'Will you have some breakfast?' I said. "'You must be hungry, rambling about all night.' I wanted to discover where he had been, but I did not like to ask him directly. "'No, I'm not hungry,' he answered, averting his head and speaking rather contemptuously, as if he guessed I was trying to divine the occasion of his good humour. I felt perplexed. I didn't know whether it were not a proper opportunity to offer a bit of admonition. "'I don't think it right to wander out of doors,' I observed, instead of being in bed. "'It is not wise, at any rate this moist season. "'I dare say you'll catch a bad cold or fever. "'You have something the matter with you now.' "'Nothing but what I can bear,' he replied, "'and with the greatest pleasure, provided you'll leave me alone. "'Get in and don't annoy me.' "'I obeyed, and in passing I noticed he breathed as fast as a cat. "'Yes,' I reflected to myself, "'we shall have a fit of illness. "'I cannot conceive of what he's been doing.' That noon he sat down to dinner with us and received a heaped-up plate from my hands as if intended to make amends for previous fasting. "'I have neither cold nor fever, Nelly,' he remarked in allusion to my morning speech, "'and I'm ready to do justice to the food you give me.' He took his knife and fork and was going to commence eating when the inclination appeared to become suddenly extinct. He laid them on the table, looked eagerly towards the window, then rose and went out, we saw him walking to and fro in the garden, where we concluded our meal, and Earnshaw said he'd go and ask why he would not dine. He thought we had grieved him in some way. "'Well, is he coming?' cried Kathleen when her cousin returned. "'Nay,' he answered. "'But he's not angry. He seemed really pleased indeed. Only I made him impatient by speaking to him twice, and then he bid me off be with you. He wondered how I could want the company of anybody else.' I set his plate to keep warm on the fender, and after an hour or two he re-entered. When the same room was clear, in no degree calmer, the same unnatural, it was unnatural, appearance of joy under his black brows, the same bloodless hue, and his teeth visible now and then in a kind of smile. His frame shivering, not as one shivers with chill or weakness, but as a tight stretch cord vibrates, a strong thrilling rather than trembling. I will ask what is the matter, I thought, or who should. And I exclaimed, Have you heard any good news, Mr Heathcliff? You look uncommonly animated. Where good, where should good news come from to me, he said. I am animated with hunger, and seemingly I must not eat. Your dinner is here, I returned. Why won't you get it? I don't want it now, he muttered hastily. I'll wait till supper. And Nelly, once for all, let me beg you warn Hareton and the other away from me. 
I wish to be troubled by nobody. I wish to have this place to myself. Is there some new reason for this banishment? I inquired. Tell me why you are so queer, Mr Heathcliff. Where were you last night? I'm not putting the question through idle curiosity, but you are putting the question through very idle curiosity, he interrupted with a laugh. Yet I'll answer it. Last night I was on the threshold of hell. Today I am within sight of my heaven. I have my eyes on it. Hardly three feet to sever me. And now you'd better go. You'll neither hear nor see anything to frighten you if you refrain from prying. Having swept the hearth and wiped the table, I departed, more perplexed than ever. He did not quit the house again that afternoon, and no one intruded on his solitude till at least eight o'clock, when I deemed it proper, though unsummoned, to carry a candle and his supper to him. He was leaning against the ledge of the open lattice, but not looking out. His face was turned to the interior gloom. The fire had smouldered to ashes. The room was filled with the damp, mild air of the cloudy evening, and so still that not only the murmur of the beck down at Gimmerton was distinguishable, but its ripples and its gurgling over the pebbles or through the large stones which it could not cover. I uttered an ejaculation of discontent at seeing the dismal grate and commenced shutting the casements one after the other till I came to his. Must I close this, I answered in order to rouse him, for he would not stir. The light flashed on his features as I spoke. Oh, Mr Lockwood, I cannot express what a terrible start I got by the momentary view. Those deep black eyes, that smile, that ghastly paleness. It appeared to me, not Mr Heathcliff, but a goblin. And in my terror, I let the candle bend towards the wall and left me in darkness. Yes, close it, he replied in his familiar voice. There, that is pure awkwardness. Why did you hold the candle horizontally? Be quick and bring another. I hurried out in a foolish state of dread and said to Joseph, The master wishes you take him a light and rekindle the fire. I dared not go in again by myself just then. Joseph rattled some fire into the shovel and went, but he brought it back immediately with the supper tray in his other hand, explaining that Mr Heathcliff was going to bed and wanted nothing to eat until morning. We heard him mount the stairs directly. He did not proceed to his ordinary chamber, but turned into that with the panelled bed. Its window, as I mentioned before, is wide enough for anybody to get through, and it struck me that he plotted another midnight excursion, of which he'd rather we had no suspicion. Is he a ghoul or a vampire? I mused. I had read of such hideous incarnate demons. And then I set myself to reflect how I tended to him in infancy, and watched him grow to youth, and followed him almost through his whole course, and what absurd nonsense it was to yield to that sense of horror. But where did he come from? The little dark thing, harboured by a good man to his bane, muttered superstition as I dozed into unconsciousness. And I began, half dreaming, to weary myself with imagining some fit parentage for him, and repeating my waking meditations, I tracked his existence over again, with grim variations, at last picturing his death and funeral, of which all I can remember is, being exceedingly vexed at having the task of dictating an inscription for his monument, and consulting the sexton about it, and as he had no surname and we could not tell his age, we were obliged to con content ourselves with a single word, Heathcliff. That came true. We were. 
If you enter the kirkyard, you'll read on his headstone only that, and the date of his death. Dawn restored me to common sense. I rose and went into the garden as soon as I could see to ascertain if there were any footmarks under his window. There were none. He has stayed home, I thought, and he'll be all right today. I prepared breakfast for the household, as was my usual custom, but told Hareton and Catherine to get theirs ere the master came down, for he lay late. They preferred taking it out of doors under the trees, and I set a little table to accommodate them. On my re-entrance, I found Mr Heathcliff below. He and Joseph were conversing about some farming business. He gave clear, minute directions concerning the matter discussed, but he spoke rapidly and turned his head continually aside and had the same excited expression, even more exaggerated. When Joseph quitted the room, he took his seat in the place he generally chose and I put a basin of coffee before him. He drew it nearer and then rested his arms on the table and looked at the opposite wall, as I supposed, surveying one particular portion up and down with glittering, restless eyes and with such eager interest that he stopped breathing during half a minute altogether. Come now, I exclaimed, pushing some bread against his hand. Eat and drink that. While it is hot, it has been waiting near an hour. He didn't notice me, and yet he smiled. I'd rather have seen him gnash his teeth than smile so. Mr Heathcliff, master, I cried, don't for God's sake stare as if you saw an unearthly vision. Don't for God's sake shout so loud, he replied. Turn round and tell me, are we by ourselves? Of course, was my answer, of course we are. Still, I involuntarily obeyed him, as if I was not quite sure. With a sweep of his hand, he cleared a vacant space in front among the breakfast things and leant forward to gaze more at his ease. Now I perceived he was not looking at the wall, for when I regarded him alone, it seemed exactly that he gazed at something within two yards' distance, and whatever it was, it communicated apparently both pleasure and pain in exquisite extremes. At least the anguished yet raptured expression of his countenance suggested that idea. The fancied object was not fixed either. His eyes pursued it with unweary diligence, and even in speaking to me, were never weaned away. I vainly reminded him of his protracted abstinence from food. If he stirred to touch anything in compliance with my entreaties, if he stretched his hand out to get a piece of bread, his fingers clenched before they reached it and remained on the table forgetful of their aim. I sat, a model of patience, trying to attract his absorbed attention from its engrossing speculation, so that he grew irritable and got up, asking why I would not allow him to have his own time in taking his meals, and saying that on the next occasion I needn't wait, I might set the things down and go. Having uttered these words, he left the house, slowly sauntered down the garden path and disappeared through the gate. The hours crept anxiously by, another evening came. I did not retire to rest till late, and when I did, I could not sleep. He returned after midnight and instead of going to bed shut himself in the room beneath. I listened and tossed about and finally dressed and descended. It was too irksome to lie there harassing my brain with a hundred idle misgivings. I distinguished Mr Heathcliff's step restlessly measuring the floor and he frequently broke the silence by a deep inspiration resembling a groan. He muttered detached words also 
The only one I could catch was the name of Catherine, coupled with some wild term of endearment or suffering, and spoken as one who would speak to a person present, low and earnest and wrung from the depth of his soul. I had not courage to walk straight into the apartment, but I desired to divert him from his reverie and therefore fell foul of the kitchen fire, stirred it and began to scrape the cinders. It drew him forth sooner than I expected. He opened the door immediately and said, Nelly, come here. Is it morning? Come in with your light. It is striking four, I answered. If you will want a candle to take upstairs, you might have a lit one at this fire. No, I don't wish to go upstairs, he said. Come in and kindle me a fire and do anything there is to do about the room. I must blow the coals red first before I can carry any, I replied, getting a chair in the bellows. He roamed to and fro, meantime in a state of approaching distraction, his heavy sighs succeeding each other so thick as to leave no space for common breathing between. When the day breaks I'll send for Green, he said. I wish to make some legal inquiries of him while I can bestow a thought on those matters and while I can act calmly. I have not written my will yet and how I wish to leave my property I cannot determine. I wish I could annihilate it from the face of the earth. I would not talk so, Mr Heathcliff, I interposed. Let your will be a while and you'll be spared to repent of your many injustices yet. I never expected that your nerves would be disordered. They are at present marvellously so, however, and almost entirely through your own fault. The way you've passed these three nights might knock up a titan. Do take some food and some repose. You need only look at yourself in the glass to see how you require both. Your cheeks are hollow and your eyes bloodshot, like a person starving with hunger and going blind with loss of sleep. It is not my fault that I cannot eat or rest, he replied. I assure you it is through no settled designs. I'll do both as soon as I possibly can. But you might as well bid a man struggling in the water to rest within arm's length of the shore. I must reach it first, and then I'll rest. Well, never mind, Mr Green. As to repenting of my injustice, injustices, I've done no injustice, and I repent of nothing. I'm too happy, and yet I'm not happy enough. My soul's bliss kills my body but does not satisfy itself. Happy, master, I cried. Strange happiness. If you would hear me without being angry, I might offer some advice that would make you happier. What is it? he asked. Give it. You are aware, Mr Heathcliff, I said, that from the time you were thirteen years old, you have lived a selfish, unchristian life and probably hardly had a Bible in your hands during all that period. You must have forgotten the contents of the book and you may not have space to search it now. Could it be hurtful to send for someone, some minister of any denomination, it does not matter which, to explain it and show you how very far you have erred from its precepts and how unfit you will be for its heaven unless a change takes place before you die? I'm rather obliged than angry, Nelly, he said, for you remind me of the manner in which I desire to be buried. It is to be carried to the churchyard in the evening. You and Hareton may, if you please, accompany me, and mind, particularly, to notice that the sexton obeys my directions concerning these two coffins. No minister need come, nor need anything be said over me. I tell you, I have nearly attained my heaven. 
that of others is altogether unvalued and uncoveted by me. And supposing you persevered in your obstinate fast and died by that means, and then they refused to bury you in the precincts of the kirk, I said, shocked at his godless indifference, how would you like that? They won't do that, he replied. If they did, you must have me removed secretly, and if you neglect it, you shall prove practically that the dead are not annihilated. As soon as he heard the other members of the family stirring, he retired to his den and I breathed freer. But in the afternoon, while Joseph and Hareton were at their work, he came into the kitchen again and with a wild look bid me come and sit in the house. He wanted somebody with him. I declined, telling him plainly that his strange talk and manner frightened me and I had neither the nerve nor the will to be his companion alone. I believe you think me a fiend, he said with his dismal laugh, something too horrible to live under a decent roof. Then turning to Catherine, who was there and who drew behind me at his approach, she added half sneeringly, Will you come, Chuck? I'll not hurt you. No, to you I've made myself worse than the devil. Well, there is one who won't shrink from my company. By God, she's relentless. Oh, damn it. It's unutterably too much for flesh and blood to bear, even mine. He solicited the society of no one more. At dusk he went to his chamber. Through the whole night and far into the morning we heard him groaning and murmuring to himself. Hareton was anxious to enter, but I bid him fetch Mr Kenneth and he should go in and see him. When he came and I requested admittance and tried to open the door, I found it locked and Heathcliff bid us be damned. He was better and would be left alone so the doctor went away. The following evening was very wet, indeed it poured down till dawn day, and as I took my morning walk around the house, I observed the master's window swinging open and the rain driving straight in. He cannot be in bed, I thought, those showers would drench him through. He must be either up or out. But may I'll make no more ado, I'll go boldly and look. Having succeeded in obtaining entrance with another key, I ran to unclose the panels, for the chamber was vacant. Quickly pushing them aside, I peeked in. Mr Heathcliff was there, laid on his back. His eyes met mine so keen and fierce, I started, and then he seemed to smile. I could not think him dead, but his face and throat were washed with rain. The bedclothes dripped, and he was perfectly still. The lattice, flapping to and fro, had grazed one hand that rested on the sill. No blood trickled from the broken skin, and when I put my fingers to it, I could doubt no more. He was dead and stark. I hasped the window. I combed his black long hair from his forehead. I tried to close his eyes to extinguish, if possible, that frightful, lifelike gaze of exaltation before anyone else beheld it. They would not shut. They seemed to sneer at my attempts, and his parted lips and sharp white teeth sneered too. Taken with another fit of cowardice, I cried out for Joseph. Joseph shuffled up and made a noise, but absolutely, resolutely refused to meddle with him. The devil's harried off his soul, he cried, and he may have his carcass into bargain, for aught I care. What a wicked and he looks, grinning at death. 
and the old sinner grinned in mockery. I thought he intended to cut a caper round the bed, but suddenly composing himself he fell on his knees and raised his hands and returned thanks that the lawful master and the ancient stock were restored to their rights. I felt stunned by the awful event, and my memory unavoidably recurred to former times with a sort of oppressive sadness. But poor Hareton, the most wronged, was the only one who really suffered much. He sat by the corpse all night, weeping in bitter earnest. He pressed its hand and kissed the sarcastic savage face that everyone else shrank from contemplating, and bemoaned him with that strong grief which springs naturally from a generous heart, though it be as tough as tempered steel. Mr Kenneth was perplexed to pronounce of what disorder the master died. I concealed the fact of his having swallowed nothing for four days, fearing it might lead to trouble, and then I am persuaded he did not abstain on purpose. It was the consequence of his strange illness, not the cause. We buried him, to the scandal of the whole neighbourhood, as he wished. Earnshaw and I, the sexton and six men to carry the coffin, comprehended the whole attendance. The six men departed when they had let it down into the grave. We stayed to see it covered. Hareton, with a streaming face, dug green sods and laid them over the brown mould himself. At present it is as smooth and verdant, verdant as its companion mounds, and I hope its tenant sleeps as soundly. But the country folks, if you ask them, would swear on the Bible that he walks. There are those who speak to having met him near the church and on the moor and even within this house. Idle tales, you'll say, and so say I. Yet that old man by the kitchen fire affirms he has seen two of them looking out of his chamber window on every rainy night since his death. And an odd thing happened to me about a month ago. I was going to the Grange one evening, a dark evening threatening thunder, and just at the turn of the heights I encountered a little boy with a sheep and two lambs before him. He was crying terribly, and I suppose the lambs were skittish and would not be guided. "'What is the matter, my little man?' I asked. "'There's Heathkith and a woman yonder under Tanab,' he blubbered, "'and I daren't pass them.' "'I saw nothing, but neither the sheep nor he would go on, "'so I bid him take the lower road. "'He probably raised the phantoms from thinking "'as he traversed the moors alone "'on the nonsense he had heard his parents and companions repeat. "'Yet still, I don't like being out in the dark now, "'and I don't like being left by myself in this grim house.' I cannot help it. I shall be glad when they leave it and shift to the Grange. They are going to the Grange then, I said. Yes, answered Mrs Dean, as soon as they are married, and that will be on New Year's Day. And who will live here then? Why, Joseph will take care of the house and perhaps a lad to keep him company. They will live in the kitchen and the rest will be shut up. For the use of such ghosts as choose to inhabit it, I observed. No, Mr Lockwood, said Nellie, shaking her head. I believe the dead are at peace, but it is not right to speak of them with levity. At that moment the garden gate swung to, the ramblers were returning. They are afraid of nothing, I grumbled, watching their approach through the window. Together they were brave Satan and all his legions. As they stepped onto the door stones and halted to take a last look at the moon, or more correctly, at each other by her light, I felt irresistibly impelled to escape them again. 
and pressing a remembrance into the hand of Mrs. Dean and disregarding her expostulations at my rudeness, I vanished through the kitchen as they opened the house door and so should have confirmed Joseph in his opinion of his fellow servant's gay indiscretions had he not fortunately recognised me for a respectable character by the sweet ring of a sovereign at his feet. My walk home was lengthened by a diversion in the direction of the kirk. When beneath its walls I perceived decay had made progress even in seven months, many a window showed black gaps deprived of glass, and slates jutted off here and there beyond the right line of the roof to be gradually worked off in coming autumn storms. I sought, as soon discovered, the three headstones on the slope next the moor, the middle one grey and half buried in the heath. Edgar Linton's only harmonised by turf and moss creeping up its foot. Heathcliff's still bare. I lingered round them under that benign sky, watched the moths fluttering among the heath and harebells, listened to the soft wind breathing through the grass, and wondered how anyone could ever imagine unquiet slumbers for the sleepers in that quiet earth.